All right, welcome to, or welcome back rather, to Unearned Confidence. My name's Ben and I'm here with Kyle. Hello. Today we have the special privilege of talking to Mr. Seth Mullendore. Seth is the Vice President and Project Director of Clean Energy Group in Vermont. Seth comes to us, he's uh, got a background in uh, geosciences and a master's from Stanford, Stanford uh, out in California in civil and environmental engineering and atmosphere and energy emphasis. We uh, have the privilege of talking to you today uh, about some things that we think our guests will find quite interesting, and that's how we get our energy into our homes, how we utilize them, uh, where that energy is coming from, uh, where that energy might be going, some of the stumbling blocks uh, with that, and uh, some of the uh, uh, entities that are working for it, maybe against it. Seth, how are you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. Yeah, we're we're super stoked to have you. Uh, it looks like it's a pretty sunny day there in Vermont. It is. It is. I've got solar on my roof, and it's a good day for solar. So nice. All right, <laughs> right on. It's cool to hear that. Uh, I I recently learned this actually, um, that I I presume that a lot of the 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 the, the New England states would be um, a challenge to have you know solar power plants on your house, but it works, right? It does. It works right now. I can say that I've generated enough as much today as I did in uh, in all of January when my solar panels were covered in snow. So there are some challenges to that for sure. Yeah, that, that's funny. My uh, I have a um, a pretty sizable array on my house. Uh, it's almost it's I guess about twelve and a half kilowatts. So it's and it's it's embedded into the roof. It's not a Tesla type system, but it is a it's embedded into the concrete uh, panels, and uh, it's awesome. As you know, we get a lot of sun out here in Colorado. I believe you live nearby for a while, and but uh, we also get particularly up here in Evergreen a lot of snow, and you know yeah. I just thought well that's that during January, February, March, April we're just screwed. We're we're not going to get a lot of. But then I hear that uh, there's people out there talking about putting heating coils through these things, and uh, I mean, problem solved, right? So yeah, I mean, I have I have heard about that. So um, you know, mine don't have it, uh, and when it heats up and there's a little patch that gets through, it it's, it melts off pretty easily. But yeah, when you get the particularly here, we get the snow, and then it melts a little, and then you get ice on top of that, and then then you're down for a couple of weeks. Right on. Yep. Well, if you don't mind, do you uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do, like your what's your what's your charge with doing at Clean Energy Group, and and uh, and what what sort of things you're uh, working on on a pretty regular basis? Yeah, certainly, certainly. So, uh, Clean Energy Group, we're a national nonprofit. We're based here in Vermont, uh, but we work all across the country. Um, the organization itself has been around for about twenty years. I've been with them for for around five years now. Uh, my work is mostly focused on solar paired with energy storage. Uh, the, the majority of that work is a project we call our Resilient Power Project, which is focused on enabling greater access to what we call resilient power, which is really solar and yeah. storage for backup power and reducing energy burdens among disadvantaged communities. So we work a lot with affordable housing developers, um, facilities that, that provide community services to low-income organizations, low-income uh, populations. Uh, outgrowth of that work, though. So, so in that in that 
you know, area we work a lot on policy, do analytics around that to get information out, and we help facilitate actual projects getting developed. Um, but some outgrowth of that work, we've gotten more into the the health space as it interacts with uh, energy independence. And then uh, something that would be for, for today's conversation is looking at uh, peak power, peaker power plants and right the on. ability of batteries and, and batteries paired with renewable energy to act as a viable, cost-effective, and much, much cleaner alternative to traditional fossil-fueled gas plants. Uh, so that's quick overview of my work. Right on. Would you mind if you... Um, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more. I'm sure the audience would. Um, maybe what is a peaker plant um, and how they kind of fit into the modern grid? Yeah, so the, the grid basically has kind of three big buckets of power. So there's base load generation. That pretty much does the same thing all the time. We're talking about traditionally big coal plants and nuclear plants, sometimes big hydro. But they, they're pretty flat. They just produce the same amount of energy pretty much all the time. Then there's intermediate power. And basically, as, as load fluctuates slowly over time, it follows those loads. So they'll ramp up production and ramp down. These tend to be big gas plants. You know, increasingly, we're getting wind and solar filling a lot of these holes. Um, and then there is the power above and beyond what these base load and intermediate can provide. And those are called peaker plants. Uh, peaker plants, they don't operate very often. Um, the, the amount of time that a, a power plant operates is called a capacity factor. So it's the, the amount that it actually produces over time versus what it could produce over time. And peaker plants are generally things that are 15% or less of the time. So that means they're operating 15% of the time or less. Lots of times it's less than 5% or less than even 1%. So a peaker plant may operate, say, 100 hours a year mm -hmm. out of the over you know, 87, 60 hours that are in a year. So not a lot. Um, they tend to be gas plants, either combustion turbines or reciprocating engines. And they are fairly inexpensive to build. They tend to be smaller than, than the intermediate and baseload plants, um, but they're really expensive to, to operate. So they're the, uh, the generators of last resort because they're really expensive when you want to power them on. And those are times like, um, say you're in uh, in a hot area and everybody's air conditioner is cranking or you're in an area that's really cold and a lot of people have electric heating yeah. and you're going above and beyond what baseload can provide and what intermediate can provide then you call on the peakers and the utilities say okay we're going to spend a bunch of money to produce this power because that's the only option we've got you were you were mentioning so i want to just for full disclosure we we're big fans of this uh youtube show called Z uh now you know and it's uh, presented by father son duo zach and jesse and they did an episode a few weeks back on peaker plants and uh, uh kind of gave the the you know hey these things exist and here's why and and the, and the higher level sort of view of of uh, of what they do um and one of the things that they they mentioned that they sort of illustrated it just like you did, like, you know, summertime, Arizona, everybody clicks on their ACs all at once. Boom. There's this load that wasn't there, you know, 30 minutes before. And these things sort of step up to the plate so that brownouts and things like that are avoided or straight up blackouts. Um, the, but one of the things that they elucidated for me was that these plants um, are, are one, they don't just immediately snap on like, like, uh, they, they, they take a minute. You have to, like, I don't know, 
what exactly the machinations have to occur to make it, but these are big systems that have to sort of be put into place and, and fired up. So 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of time is what they were saying to, to step, snap up. Whereas maybe an alternative to a peaker plant might be a battery storage where it, it just snaps on uh, in milliseconds. Do you, do you, can you, can you speak to that? Does that sound accurate to you? At least uh, yeah, that, that, that's certainly accurate. You know, and and how long the fossil fuel peaker plants take to to actually ramp up. So and that's the thing. So they're starting off either from a low level or or, or not at all. And it takes them a while to build up that power level. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the actually really bad things about that is um, a lot of pollution control technologies don't kick in until you reach a certain level of uh, generation. Mm-hmm. So there can be no pollution controls in place when those those power plants are, are ramping up. And we'll talk more about that later, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so depending on the technology, there are even some old coal plants that are not economic to run as baseload anymore, and they're being used as peaker plants. Those can take a half hour, an hour to ramp up. And those, of course, are the dirtiest of dirties. Um, gas plants, like combustion turbines, They'll take uh, quite a lot less time, you know, in the, the like 10 minutes to a half hour. Mm-hmm. And then there are the reciprocating engines. And those are, are faster. They, they can be just a, a few minutes for those sure to ramp up and down. And those are being deployed more often now, but they cost more. So that's why traditionally they hadn't been put out there. And, you know, basically we're just talking about a big engine. Um, you know, big diesel engine would be a reciprocating engine. So Turning these are the kind of electric generator. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like you said, batteries, it's a, a fraction of a second for them to reach full power. So they're much more versatile. Uh, plus they don't spew out any emissions when they kick on. That's uh, that's, that's kind of what uh, I was wanting to, to determine. It, it doesn't sound like once they're in place that they, you know, I'm sure there is certain um, uh, footprint left by the manufacturer of these lithium cells and everything that goes along with it and the tools and so such to, to get them into place. But after that, it's it, apparently pretty damn clean. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And of course, there's always a, a life cycle cost uh, for these things. So there's going to be a certain amount of carbon from the mining of, of the resources that go into it to uh, you know putting it together and getting it in place somewhere. Uh, once they're there, the the storage system itself does not have any greenhouse gases, no no emissions. Now, it does depend on what's charging those. So if you're charging them with a bunch of coal somewhere, that's that's so not so great because it means you're doing more coal generation. Um, but in places where there's a lot of renewables, say you know, California, or Hawaii, certainly, uh, most of the stuff that you're going to be charging things with are renewable energy. And the more renewables you get on, the, the, the higher the likelihood that you're going to be curtailing some renewables anyways. And you can use that excess generation to charge up your batteries and use it for a time when you really need it later on. That's cool. So, so do you I, feel like, go ahead, Kyle. Sorry. Um, do you feel like it's necessary to to put renewables in place before um, a big emphasis gets put onto storage, or do you think that rolling storage out and replacing peaker plants, even in in areas where you're having uh, base load generation that's a little bit dirty, it? I'm just curious, kind of like what your logic is on on where to start in the process of transitioning things in a state that's that has a long way to go. 
Yeah, so I would say it's better to start earlier than later. Um, you know, I use somewhat the the way that EVs are rolling out. There's been some reports that come out and backlash saying, oh, if you have an electric vehicle in a place where the, the predominant grid power is coal, that you're actually increasing emissions. Well, maybe in the short term, yes, that, that might be possible. But you're getting the technology out there. You're getting people more familiar with it. You're helping ease that transition and bringing down the costs of those technologies in the meantime. So in the long run, it's a good thing for advancing the technology. So, and we're seeing places like California that are struggling at this point to get rid of some of their peaker plants. Even though they have very ambitious goals, they've got a lot of solar in California, um, but they're retroactively trying to figure out what to do with these peakers and they're finding they're relying on them a little bit more now uh, because of the solar, they're having more ramping, they're having more times where they need power to be there really quickly because they don't have something else to do that in place, they're dependent on their existing resources and, and, and using them more. So it's better to get ahead of that curve, let your utilities get more comfortable with it and how it operates ahead of time, start creating the, the value streams that you need in order to incentivize more storage get all the kinks out before you find out it's too late and um, you've got to kind of retroactively fit it into the system that you've created for yourself. So let me expand. I want to add, I go further with that. Kyle, that's a, that's a, that, that was the question is, is on my mind, not as eloquently put, but I, I, uh, I will, I'll, I'll mess this up a little bit, but just for the people that are watching. So getting, getting very fundamental, when we talk about electricity, when a, when a, a regular coal-fired plant, the, the general plant, not a peaker plant, is out producing electricity or, or creating it, that electricity, let's say <clears throat> a, a city's 100% need is being produced at any one time, but that need obviously is not, a, it's not linear. It's probably much more like a sine wave or up and down, right? Needs heavier during one pint of the day. So I, I would assume that a utility probably tries to work hard to match need with demand, but it, it can never be one-to-one, -one, I assume, when storage is not a consideration. Is it, would that be fair to say? Yeah, so I mean, this gets kind of complicated, and I will say this is not my no worries. area of expertise, but um, there's a certain amount of what they call inertia in the system mm -hmm. because most of the generators that we have is turning things. Mm -hmm. It's turbines and things like that. So there's a certain amount of inertia. So if demand um, lowers on some of these things, then the turbines start to, to rotate a little bit slower. If it rises, then usually you can just crank a knob and you start to go up. Okay. But there's a bit of a delay because of that. Now, there is some people are saying that as we get less and less spinning things going, um, particularly solar, to a lesser extent wind, that we're not going to have that same kind of inertia. So we need more of a buffer in there. I see. And that's another reason why storage becomes that much more important because it's it's there. It's just immediately can do that. That's some of the you know, voltage and frequency uh, regulation I was talking about. Storage can do that, no problem. Perfect. So that leads me then to this, this thought and uh, is like, it, there is, it sounds like no matter what, when you have these spinning things, there's going to be excess energy produced that's just going to go into the atmosphere or not be utilized. So if these storage containment units can take, and instead of, like, so we know that with a peaker plant, at least the traditional ones that are gas-fired, you have to pollute in order to, to use 
the energy. You just have to. It's a byproduct of the production of that energy. And you also have to pollute when you're at your regular, you know, 80% power, big coal-fired power plant, you have to produce pollution. But it sounds like there might be excess energy at any one time that can be then offloaded into these batteries. And then, so the, 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 by, the, by, by putting in or installing a, a storage unit that you're capturing the excess from the main plant and then utilizing it uh, more efficiently, that, it, it, maybe I have that logic wrong, but I, that's the way I understand it is we could utilize that as, a, as opposed to having to create another pollution source uh, to, to, to do that. Is, does that. Does that sound accurate to you or within the shooting range? Yeah, no, it's really in the shooting range. Uh, there, there's been talk about, and, and again, we're less proponents of this because we're clean energy group and we're trying to get rid of fossil fuels completely um, to the extent that we can um, today. Uh, so there's been talk of hybridization of, of certain power plants. So putting storage, pairing it with existing power plants um, so that that power plant can operate more efficiently. Um, you know, with peaker plants, it can even mean that you have enough storage that you don't have to turn the power plant on at all. Um, right. So there have been some cases in, in California where there's been these hybrid um, energy storage with traditional gas turbines, and they've seen some pretty significant emissions reductions at, at those plants. Um, but at the end of the day, you don't really want to make your coal plants more efficient and have them operating more. I mean, that's, of that's course, at least of course. In my work, that's not why I put storage out there. The, the idea is to get beyond that reality. Without a doubt. And I think that, that to me, that analogy, though, I, I use it when I talk to folks about driving an electric car, when they, they, they say, well, hey, yeah, you're driving an electric car, but um, that energy is still coming from a coal-fired plant, and they are definitely not wrong. That's, that's <clears throat> shitty. It's, 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 it's not good energy. It's not clean. However, with this thing, you know, steam recapture, you're, you're at least more efficient while we get to the steps of total renewables. So, the, you know, nothing happens, like I said before, in a vacuum. This is, this is incremental, and it's, it's getting to a place of, of 100% renewable energy. But in the interim, it still makes more sense to utilize, at least currently, uh, coal-fired energy in the steam recapture to get us to a place of total sustainability as opposed to driving around our ICE vehicles uh, where they're, they're at a much lesser efficiency uh, when it comes to fossil fuels. So that's something we, I, I try to understand better is, is okay, yeah, this is the, the albatross we're strapped with right now and why it's better than maybe an alternative, but here's the direction we're going kind of, kind of ideology. So something that, something that comes up in my mind as you're saying that is that I wonder if, and Seth will be able to speak to this better than I can, but I wonder if, while if we were all automatons that made perfectly logical decisions, being as efficient as possible in, in putting things in place when it makes the most sense logically, that, that'd be the way to get there quickest. Maybe by kind of enabling um, utilities to do hybridization or something, it puts a momentum kind of in the wrong direction. And, and suddenly you're in this place where, you know, they're saying, well, you know, we have this hybrid system where we're making our coal more efficient and they're, it enables them to put less effort into uh, the transition than they might otherwise would. But I'm just speculating. 
So yeah, so let me, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's bringing up a good point is that uh, energy storage, you can put it pretty much anywhere. So it doesn't have to be a utility investment. It doesn't have to be this huge capital outlay for every system that you put out there. A lot of people have energy storage systems in their batteries, I mean, in their homes, um, batteries in their homes. So one by one, a home battery system isn't going to do a whole lot. But if you've got, I think it's a 14 kilowatt hour, the, the Tesla Powerwalls, um, if you've got a thousand of those, then you're starting to talk about something pretty real. Um, and that's that's not outside the realm of possibility. Um, there's a, a company called Sunrun. They're they're the biggest residential solar installer in in the country now, and they got a capacity contract, basically a contract to provide power to the uh, the New England system operator for 20 megawatts. They're using residential solar and storage systems. They're going to use thousands of them. I think it's something like 5,000 of them, but they, they can do that. Then, then they're under contract to provide that. 20 megawatts is, is not nothing. You start to ramp that up to commercial scale, which could be you know 10 times bigger than residential or even 100 times bigger than residential. Then you start getting into you know, hundreds of megawatts of systems out there. And these are the size of power plants. So you can have a, a solution that's distributed across thousands and thousands of homes and businesses and that gets away from the utility paradigm that you're talking about, where the utility just does what they want to do and keeps operating the assets yeah. that they wanted to. It takes the control out of theirs. Now, they might be the ones that say, okay, discharge now and, and not now, and I'm, I'm going to pay you for that. Um, but that's them paying you to provide that service instead of them using their own assets and just building and using whatever they want to. Now, what would you say to somebody that that – says, well, okay, um, it, looking right now, wind energy doesn't produce that much energy in America, which I kind of believe it does. Uh, solar doesn't do much. It's a small percentage. Hydro, you know, maybe has a disproportionate amount of uh, effect in certain areas, depending on what you've got in terms of resources in that work, that regard. What is there? <clears throat> it seems to me like there is a, uh, it's not just, there's not going to be a silver bullet uh, that that knocks down uh, all of our energy needs, but rather all of these things in concert, working together, uh, the various sources of renewable, working with storage. Uh, how do you see that shaping up? Like, how, you know, if we when we say when people out there are going, we want to go 100% renewable, sustainable. Well, what the hell does that even mean? Like, I know basic concept what that means, but what does that look like uh, in real time, in 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 in, in real language? Yeah, well, I mean, I've seen study after study that says using today's technologies, existing technologies, you can get to 80% reduction in, in emissions. So you're getting 80%, um, even 80% renewables in some cases. Some folks, you know, say nuclear in there, some, um, that's not my area, uh, but others say just wind, solar, hydro, and existing storage technologies, you can get to 80%. Now, wow. that last 20% is going to be a challenge, and you're going to need innovation. You're going to need um, things like maybe hydrogen for long-duration storage or some other kind of um, long-duration storage technology that we just don't have commercially available at a low enough cost right now. Um, but using today's batteries, and we're talking about lithium-ion batteries, they're, they're the predominant one that's deployed out there. 
you could get to 80%. Uh, wow. So this is going to depend where you are, certainly, and that what kind of resources today. you have. What's that? That could happen today, 80%, if we were, if that we had it. In today's technologies, it's going to take a little wow. time to get there, and it's going to yeah. take a lot of policy changes to get there. But yeah, That's you can do that with what exists today, solar, wind, you know, not a whole lot of new hydro. Most of these don't consider uh, a lot of new hydro to be viable. Um, so it's mainly mainly solar, wind for a while, and then solar really takes off as the predominant generation source in, in most of these studies. Wow. So with um, with renewable renewable energy production, obviously, the bridge to make it really viable is storage and batteries is the first place everyone's mind goes to. But I know like here in Georgetown, we have um, up on the pass, there's two lakes, one's above another. And when they've got an, when they've got an electricity surplus, they'll pump water into the lake up the hill. Um, and now that's stored potential energy and they have a hydroelectric system to pump it down to the lower lake and, and recapture some of that energy. Obviously there's an efficiency loss, but um, it's a way for them to kind of store that energy and, one could assume that if it was renewable energy that was generating the pumping electricity, uh, it would be a kind of a nice way to store that energy. And there's other forms of storage. What's your opinion on other forms of electricity storage, excluding batteries? Are those viable? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, pumped hydro has been around for a long, long time, um, you know, centuries. And, and it's the largest energy storage resource that is in existence today. Um, we're just not getting a whole lot of new ones. There are some novel ideas for um, filling caves with with water to pr provide uh, new sources of, of pumped hydro or compressed air storage in caves, uh, things like that. Um, they aren't at a price point where they make sense yet, and, and they still tend to be pretty ge geographically or geologically um, narrow, so you have to have the right conditions around there are some novel concepts like uh, using gravity potential, um, stacking giant multi-ton cinder blocks to provide longer duration storage. Uh, so when you get into the, the long duration storage, there's a lot of other things out there. Pumped hydro is sometimes considered long duration. Usually they have at their power, maximum power level, you know, 10 hours or so of, of energy storage potential, whereas lithium ion batteries, you know, usually don't see more than, than eight hour duration um, applications of that today, although increasingly you're seeing a few tens and things like that. But um, so there's a lot out there. I, I will say, you know, for the conversation about peaker plants and peaker power, you're talking less about those. And almost without fail, uh, the, the projects that are actually getting done are batteries right now. So that's really the technology where we are in the, in the peaker space and the, the shorter duration storage space. Long duration, it's going to take some work, and, and I'm not sure what's going to come out on top. Um, I feel like that's a whole other episode we could go yes, down, down, down that road. <laughs> so the cinder block, the gravity cinder block system, can you describe that? Yeah, so it's, it's a crane. with I think it has multiple arms. It picks up oh, something like 50-ton cinder blocks, stacks them, creates a tower um, to build up the, the, the potential, and then when you call on it, lowers it down and again that spins the thing creates electricity that's that's it it's as simple as it is isn't it yeah, yeah. It is. displaced it is. energy there from one area to the other that, uh, you uh you haul a train full of rocks up a hill mm -hmm. i've seen that one 
Um, there's actually, this is back to the EV thing, but there was an amazing story about a, uh, a mine where they mine for materials at the top of a hill and there's a giant, you know, multi-ton uh, pickup, basically a, a dump truck that's an EV that's been running there. They never have to charge it because it fills up with dirt at the top and has more potential then and it recharges itself as it goes down, then it has an empty load <laughs> and goes back to the top. And you, you never have to charge it. Yeah, that's so oh, cool. Well, so. if, if you mind, I, I want to switch to just a slightly different subject. And it's, it's one we don't talk about as much here in the United States. I feel like I hear it talked about more in Europe and Asia. But the subject of renewables for us in America generally seems to concentrate around propulsion. You know, and uh, or, or an energy source of one form or another to power our homes, power our lives, our cars, etc. But what we don't talk about is how it relates to pollution, or in fact, the 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 lack of pollution. And uh, that seems like, I mean, for depending on when our our viewers or listeners are listening or watching this, um, you can see we're all in our own homes uh, because of this coronavirus. We're all being uh, socially isolating. But one of the things that uh, I th- probably you two, uh, I certainly I have myself have seen these uh, these images of. Um, it's, some appear to be satellite images, some appear to be, you know, photographs of skylines, but there seems to be a measurable decrease in pollution, at least the visible type. Uh, and, and a lot of people are attributing that to the, the shutdown of or the, the large scale reduction of our economy and all the associated uh, fossil fuel industries being impacted by this. Is this is this happening or are we all just kind of being hopeful here? I mean, is that is are these things real? Yeah, and again, I'll preface that I'm not an expert in this space, so you know what I, sure. what I can say about it is what I'm seeing in, in articles is, is as well, and and it is a real thing. This actually happened in the the, the last recession, um, whereas economic activity decreases, you see less emissions. Here, it's even more extreme because we've got a lot less people out on the roads. There's sure. a lot less transportation going on, both cars and planes mm-hmm. um we've got a lot less manufacturing going on a lot less economic just activity in general so when that happens uh there's a lot less emissions out there um i can say i've been watching new york city we've been out there and they're talking about first they were saying two percent decreases now they're projecting they could have 10 to 20 percent decrease in the demand for electricity uh, over the time period where, where COVID-19 is keeping people at home and, and, and keeping people away from, from wow. their jobs. So that's significant. Um, that's, that's a real measurable thing. And these things in the air that we can't see that are going away, um, again, I'm one of these Americans that hasn't necessarily paid much of attention, as much attention to pollution as I should. I'm, I'm trying to get up to speed, but I'm, I'm still pretty, pretty stupid that way. But it, as it goes, do the, these this particulate matter? Is it bad for us? I mean, I think it probably is, obviously. But do you can you speak to that intelligently? The 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 types of pollution that are out there is it meaningful to us as humans? Yeah, yeah. So, and I'll back up just a little bit to talk about why we at Clean Energy Group really got into peakers, um, and and why there was a place for us in that space because there's a lot of groups out there that are fighting emissions. Um, there's a lot of big organizations out there, you know, uh, NRDC, Sierra Club, 
um, that are fighting greenhouse gases and, and fighting the climate fight. And we're all for that and we're, we're in for that. But what has been kind of missed from the conversation is uh, there's greenhouse gases. And these are things like carbon dioxide and, and methane. Um, but then there's a lot of other things that are real localized emissions problems for local public health. Um, and, and the reason that we focus on peakers is because they don't operate as much. You know, these are not the big greenhouse gas emitters just because they don't they don't uh, operate as much as, as baseload plants and they're not as bad as, as coal. Um, but what they do have is, is they're smaller and they're located where energy demand is. So they're in load pockets where people need a lot of energy, which means they're close to cities. And sometimes they're in cities. Uh, New York City has about 16 peaker plants within its border, which is kind of amazing in such a, a densely populated area that there's wow. 16 big peaker plants in operation there. Um, so they produce a lot of nitrogen oxides uh, and sulfur dioxides. Um, and those are both precursors to, they can form particulates, which are uh, bad for respiratory conditions. They can clog your lungs. And for ground level ozone, which is a precursor to smog. Again, really bad for breathing. Yeah. So in, in, in places where these are, and they're usually places that have a lot of industry and cars as well, so they're just adding to this problem. I mean, these are, are, are predominantly environmental justice, low-income communities that are being affected by these plants. Um, so these have some of the highest rates of respiratory conditions you know, in the country. Uh, they have a much higher asthma rates, you know, people on uh, you know, oxygen concentrators. You see a number of reasons. Look, that, let, me, that, let me interject just a second because I want to I yeah. get, uh, get some clarity on that. You said that these tend to affect lower income areas. Is that just because of their proximity, like physical proximity of the peaker plants? Those don't get to be put in high rent districts like Westchester County. They're more or less put in like uh, some place where the economics are depressed. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a, you know, chicken and egg thing here. You know, it, it, there, there is a lot, often it's a lot easier to cite things in already uh, disadvantaged communities, underserved communities that don't have as much political clout, don't have as much wealth to push back against things. Um, and then there's the, the other that when you already have a lot of bad stuff in one area, uh, prices tend to go down, and that tends to be where people with lower incomes can afford to live. Exactly. So, and a lot of this has a long history of things like redlining, um, where people were specifically put in certain places mm -hmm. because of the color of the skin. Uh, so that's, you know, there are a lot of reasons why. Um, and again, I'm not the best person to talk about this, but we work a clearly lot. Clearly there's something there. Yeah, there, there's clearly something there. So... And usually peaker plants are not the only thing there. So these may be places that are industrial sectors. They may be places that are, are shipping areas, you know, where there's a lot of, of vehicles going in and out, a lot of diesel emissions. Um, so they have a significant impact. I mean, it, just looking at New York City, um, peaker plants during uh, times when they can be operational, they can account for, say, 10% of the, the NOx emissions, the nitrous oxide emissions, uh, in New York City, and this, you know, the size of New York City, and all the other things are being polluted there. Mm -hmm. Sixteen power plants accounting for ten percent of the NOx emissions is it's really a high level, um, and knocking them out would have a, a really appreciable impact on on the health of those wow. communities. 
So you mentioned earlier that um, that there can't be um, there can't be environmental protection mechanisms. Those don't come into operation in speaker plants until they've reached a certain level of output. Is, is, is am I saying that properly? Yeah, you are, and again, not not my area of expertise, but yeah. So uh, basically, there there are you know emissions limitations on a lot of power plants, um, but in emissions controls devices to make sure that they stay under those. But those devices don't work until you get to a certain heat level of of the power plant. So as it ramps up to that, that's when it's really the dirtiest, and you're not. Uh, really keeping track of those emissions as far as penalizing plants and things like that. The other thing that's important about peaker plants is that a lot of the environmental control policy and legislation regulations that are out there don't consider these plants because they tend to be smaller. Mm. Um, for anyone that's aware of in the Northeast, there's the regional greenhouse gas initiative, which is a bunch of states got together and they put in basically a carbon cap uh, among those states. Um, but peaker plants aren't a part of that because they're small enough that they can get around it. That's, the, the, the crazy thing is it's not even just the, the peaker plants because there are ones in New York City that are hundreds of megawatts, but it's the individual turbines, which may be you know, 20 megawatts or, or 40 megawatts. They fall under the threshold, so they're not a part of that program and, and they're not a part of those emission controls. On top of that, some of these were installed in the in the 50s, uh, a number of other ones in the 60s and 70s before they had to have emissions controls wow. and they still don't have them. Um, so they're, they're really just awful. Some of these some of these operate on kerosene, wow. which is just extremely dirty. Uh, so it, it's kind of amazing the more you know about these, just the, the worst that they get. Well, hopefully this will part me. Sorry, I, I'd be curious to see what percentage of emissions they contribute to in proportion to the amount of electricity they actually generate. And it's got to be a wild number, huh? Yeah, I think so. That's not a number that I have at my fingertips. I know some of the cost of electricity uh, from those power plants because of how little they operate. And, and they, they often get contracts just to provide capacity. And that means that they get a contract to sit there and be available um, for whenever they're called upon. There's one power plant in particular that I know of in, again, New York City. We've been doing work there. Um, in one year, it operated around 30 hours that year, and it made hundreds of millions of dollars. The like effective kilowatt hour cost of that electricity was like two and a half dollars per kilowatt hour. You know, if you look at your electricity bill, you're probably going to see somewhere around 10 cents in that range per kilowatt hour that, that it actually costs. Jesus. So this is really, really expensive power. It sounds like some shenanigans, to be honest, uh, hearing it from a layperson's point of view. It, it sounds it sounds like bullshit. And I, I hope, yeah. if, if nothing else, this conversation, to those who listen to it, are are connecting the dots here. We're seeing, we're, 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 we're pretty confident that when we look outside and we see these satellite images, we see the horizon, th th those, are, those are some of the obvious uh, benefits of this otherwise really shitty condition that, uh, that coronavirus has put us into. But for me, uh, my takeaway is that this looks 
probably like the beginning of a renewable future. If you if you're if you're wanting to know what it looks and feels like, it seems like this might be a small window into to that opportunity. I mean, I I feel like if we do keep working in earnest towards making our uh, at least our lives here in the United States and hopefully everywhere around the world sustainable that we can enjoy these days as a norm as opposed to an unfortunate uh, you know side effect of a of a really bad thing. Amen. <laughs> so yeah. Seth, I uh, I uh, I have a, a a question on like just curious. You're you're fighting entrenched players here in the energy sector and. We all know that they have a tendency to not play fair oftentimes. Are they getting in your way in any way? Are you, are you having any problems with um, like regulatory agencies getting in your way? Like what, what kind of roadblocks do you run into um, with your guys' efforts? Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. So the, the, by and large, the utility industry is not known for innovation. Um, these are the people that historically for you know decades for as long as the power system has been around they know how to build big things and run them and have a big thing here and send power out to little people all over the place um, adding in new novel technologies to that they resisted solar and storage or solar and wind and continue and in, in often cases they become so cheap in a lot of places that they can't resist them anymore um, Batteries are still a little bit expensive, so they can still resist them. Now, utilities that are allowed to own them have been pretty interested. Um, they like to own things. They like to build things that so they can get a rate of return. They can get a return on their investment for building them. A lot of utilities are actually starting to, to get into storage more. Um, but there is a lot of pushback about reliability. The utility, at the end of the day, reliability is, is often their number one, although uh, for for uh, investor-owned utilities, first it's stakeholder returns, and then reliability. Mm. Um, but uh, they are very hesitant to put anything in their system that they think could be less reliable than what they have now. And that doesn't mean that there's any technological reason for them to think that. It's just something they're not familiar with. So they are definitely slow-walking uh, energy storage. They do not want to get rid of their peaker power plants. Um, and and the regulatory structure is helping them along. The um, a federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, um, they often can um, can designate uh, power plants as what's called reliability must-run plants. Mm. And that means even if the utility wants to shut it down or if the uh, regulatory body of the state wants to shut that down, the power plant owner can keep operating it. This actually happened in California where the utility said, we don't want these gas power plants anymore. The owner of those plants petitioned FERC, and they said, okay, you have a reliability concern here, so you're allowed to keep operating, even though California doesn't want you, basically. Uh, so they had to keep paying them uh, these, these capacity contracts, basically, to, to exist. So it's, it's complicated. A lot of state folks, a lot of state, uh, uh, particularly state uh, energy offices, and legislative offices, they, they've been our, our friends. Regulatory and, and utility commissioners, uh, they're, they're a lot of times hesitant like utilities. So it depends on where you are. But it, it's a mixed bag. But 
Certainly, when then you get down to things like distributed resources, batteries in everybody's home, or a bunch of businesses, utilities are even more hesitant to do that because it's a big power shift. And, and a decentralization of what they've enjoyed for a long time is a centralized monopoly. Interesting. Is there anything at this time, so, so we, we, we're, we're, we're charged with, Kyle and I are charged with distribution of information. We want to get people out there informed and aware of just where things come from, how they work. Is there anything that on a local level an individual can do to help those efforts that you guys are charged with uh, working towards? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think uh, some of the best things you can do is be informed about it, uh, listen to shows like this, um, get information, and then look for opportunities to use it. You know, advocate for, as people have done with solar, advocate for energy storage and advocate for energy storage to be able to provide services to the larger grid. That's one of the beautiful things. A lot of people want energy storage because they want backup power. They want to be able to use it with their solar system. Um, but it won't pay for itself unless you can tap into some revenue streams. And that's where you've got to press regulators to get the utilities on board and make that happen. So one of the biggest impediments to storage just in general right now is that the market mechanisms and, and revenue streams are just not there to offset some of the cost. And you need to have the utility as a part of that um, in order to, to bridge that gap. Right on. Um, very cool. Do you think that, do you think that uh, renewable energy production paired with, with storage is something that will disrupt utilities? It seems like a technology that's going to be, like you said, distributed. What's the point of the utility at the end of the day if, if we really get to where we'd like to be? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so there is a thing called uh, grid defection that some people have talked about. Um about people actually taking themselves off the grid. And then there's there's some kind of a lesser degree of that where people take a lot of their own load off. Um, and that's a real threat to the utility model for sure. And and then there are companies that are already doing this. There's there's a battery company, a residential battery company that we've worked with some called uh, Sonnen. They're out of Germany. And in Germany, they've got more than 10,000 systems deployed, residential systems, and they have a peer-to-peer energy trading network where you can say this is how much I want for my energy and somebody else can say this is how much I'm willing to pay for it <laughs> and you buy peer-to-peer -peer, no utility they have a wow. platform someone does that allows people to buy and sell from each other you use the poles and wires and we'll, we'll continue to need those the distribution system and to a larger degree the transmission system but as far as energy generation is being done peer-to-peer household-to-household business-to-business so That'd be a nice place to end up, I think. Right on. Yeah, great question. Well, let's uh, let's start wrapping up here, but not without first asking you. You're at home, stuck like the rest of us. Coronavirus going on. How are you keeping yourself sane? I see you've got a little kitty right behind you there, uh, a little black cat or something along those lines. Yeah, that Who's is a guy? black cat. I've got two cats. <laughs> um, I, I've got a almost three-year-old, so that takes up the majority of my time when of I'm course. not trying to get some work done. I, I'm fortunate enough to live uh, on the side of a little mountain in Vermont, um, and I have some acres of land here, so there's a lot to keep me busy wow. without having to interact with other folks. So, you know, I, I feel like I'm pretty fortunate. It, spring is here. I still see snow on the ground, but, um, you know, I'm getting out and doing a lot of outdoor stuff, which 
there's plenty to do. Right on. Well, that's really encouraging. Seth, we've loved having you here. We want to have you back again when it makes sense for you, particularly if it can be uh, uh, face-to-face. That'd be great at some point when we all get out of this quagmire. It's been yeah. a real treat, and uh, we wish you the best of uh, luck moving forward. You can find us on the theucshow.com. We'd love for you to subscribe.